This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. here today. Looks so ready for a new quarter. This is great. This is great. So we're going to kick off the quarter in the best way by talking about current topics in criminal justice reform. We have two speakers today. Uh, first we'll be hearing from John Malcolm, who's the director of the Heritage Foundation's uh, Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, and he's also the chairman of the Federalist Society's Criminal Law Practice Group. He's worked in a variety of capacities in the public and private sectors, including as director of worldwide anti-piracy operations for the Motion Picture Association of America, as a deputy assistant AG for the DOJ's criminal division, and as an assistant U.S. attorney for Atlanta's fraud and public corruption section. Mr. Malcolm graduated from Harvard Law School and clerked for judges on the Northern District of Georgia uh, and on the 11th Circuit. After that, we'll be hearing from Professor Mazur, our own John P. Wilson Professor of Law. He joined the law school's faculty in 2007 after clerking for Chief Judge Marilyn P. Hall on the Northern District of California and for Judge Richard Posner. Uh, Professor Mazur graduated from Stanford University and Harvard Law School. He works in the areas of patent law, administrative law, behavioral law and economics, and criminal law. Let's welcome both of our speakers. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I also particularly want to thank Professor Mazur for uh, offering comments uh, after I'm done. Congratulations on your Jayhawks, uh, making you finally wear that with uh, wear that with pride. Uh, so I thought I would talk to you about various aspects of of criminal justice reform that are co- that are going on now. Uh, I'll try to keep an eye on the time. I sort of have a whole list of them, and I'll keep going until I guess you get tired of hearing me. Uh, there is, and, and criminal justice reform in general is a very, very interesting inflection uh, point. There's not much going on in Congress at the moment, although that may be about to change, and we can discuss uh, why that is so. But there's a lot going on uh, in the states, uh, and that I think is going to continue uh, to go on. But in any event, let me let me provide a little bit of background as to how we how we got here. Uh, so when crime rates soared in the 1960s uh, and into the early 70s, the idea of putting uh, more people in prison for long, longer periods of time made a lot of sense. Uh, and to some extent, it worked. Crime rates eventually leveled off, and since the 90, 1990s, they have dropped rather precipitously, both violent crime rates and property crime rates. And while there are certainly places in this country where crime rates remain staggeringly and persistently high, we are, for the most part, actually, much, much safer. Increased incarceration, especially for violent offenders, uh, certainly deserves some of the credit for this drop of crime, along with, by the way, other factors, such as improvements in policing techniques, smart policing, uh, more measures being taken by individuals uh, in terms of self-protection, locks on doors, burglar alarms, perhaps concealed carry permits, and the like. Um, But how much credit increased penalties deserve for the drop in crime is a matter of quite a bit of debate among criminologists. So on the high side of that, you have your very own uh, University of Chicago economist, Stephen Levitt, who's estimated that approximately 25% of the drop in crime is due to increased incarceration rates. William Spellman of the University of Texas in Austin uh, has estimated that figure to be as high as 35%. 
Now, that is hardly insignificant. But it also means that there are other factors that are responsible for the 65% or more of the reduction in crime. Moreover, incarceration, while certainly necessary, is a very uh, expensive option. Uh, and in addition to budgetary expenditures, which are quite real, increased incarceration also comes with a human cost that we should not ignore. Uh, there are now more than two million people behind bars in this country and millions more with uh, a criminal record. Uh, having a criminal record severely limits one's life's, uh, life options and those of family members, particularly kids, who study after study indicates are adversely impacted by having a parent who is incarcerated. Now, some people, of course, should go to prison and never get out because of the continuing risk that they will pose to public safety. Most inmates, however, do not fall into this category, and in fact, approximately 95% of them will, at some time, be released and return into our communities. And we should care an awful lot about what shape they are in when they do return to our communities. Given the high cost of incarceration, both economic and non-economic, many states have begun asking themselves some very tough questions. Sometimes they did so uh, out of necessity uh, during the last recession when they discovered that prison costs were now, in most cases, the second highest uh, budgetary expenditure item after Medicaid uh, on their state budgets. They started asking themselves very interesting and important questions, such as how should we define crimes and who should we send to prison? How long should we send them there? What should we do with them while they are in prison? And what should we do with them once they are released from prison? Many states, in asking themselves these questions, have started experimenting with different approaches to their criminal justice systems in ways that might help reduce some of these costs, both economic and, and human while at the same time improving, or at the very least not worsening, public safety. Some of those experiments have proven to be quite successful and quite popular. Progress in Congress, however, has been uh, more lackluster and appears to be stalled at the moment. The opioid crisis, recent spikes in crime, especially violent crime, in many of our nation's largest cities, including, of course, here in Chicago, have had a dramatic impact on that debate. Indeed, just last week, President Trump called for higher mandatory minimum penalties for certain drug offenders and increased use of the death penalty for drug dealers when it is available under current law and in appropriate cases. In some cities, such as Memphis, Chicago, Milwaukee, Baltimore, uh, crime rates have returned to where they were uh, in the 1990s, and they show very little sign of letting up. I I would hasten to add, though, that there are other major cities like New York and Los Angeles with actually far larger populations that appear to have uh, their violent crime uh, situations far more under control. So the first question that states uh, and the federal government are asking each other is, how should we define uh, crimes? And who should we send to prison? So some people are coming to a realization that not everyone who commits a crime needs to go to prison or should go to prison. There are some instances in which somebody has a condition of some sort that is a large contributing factor uh, to the fact that they have engaged in criminal activity. And so a lot of states, and to some extent the federal government, 
have started experimenting with alternative forms of court systems. Drug courts, veterans courts, mental health courts, uh, other diversion type programs like the HOPE program. That's uh, one that was started uh, in Hawaii by former judge Stephen Alm. It's Hawaii's Opportunity Probation with Enforcement Program. Other uh, states like North and South Dakota have 24-7 uh, programs. Each one of these programs is designed to focus on particular offenders who have particular ailments uh, and to try before incarcerating them for extensive periods of time to try to deal with them uh, through judges that have expertise in these areas, uh, through counselors that have expertise in these areas, so if it's veterans courts dealing with things like drug addiction, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, if it's drug courts dealing with alcohol abuse, opioid abuse, other forms of abuse, to see whether or not people can be treated and through rigorous testing uh, with strict enforcement for people who either fail to appear for those tests or who fail those tests, see whether people can be dealt with. And when I say strict enforcement, let me discuss, for instance, uh, the 24-7 program and the Hawaii Code program. So these are experimental programs in which people are either on probation or are, have been conditionally released. They're in a diversion program. And they agree that they are going to be tested randomly and frequently. And they agree, along with the defense attorneys, the prosecutors, the probation officers, that if somebody fails a test, if they don't appear for a test, it's as if they failed it. And if they fail the test, they will immediately go back to jail. Now, they do have the ability, if they want to, to contest, uh, to contest that. However, if they do, and the judge finds that they, in fact, did fail to appear or did fail the test, then a larger penalty can be imposed. The penalties, however, are different for most probation <coughs> violations. Most probation violations you would wait around until some probationer commits a whole series of violations, and then they get hauled into court if they get hauled into court, and if they are probations revoked, they're sent away to jail for long periods of time. These programs operate differently. If you are found to have tested positive in Hawaii, uh, the big problem there is methamphetamine. So you test positive for methamphetamine. Rather than revoking your probation or your release and tossing you into prison for a long period of time, you'll say get taken overnight, or you'll get taken in for the weekend. The idea being that you know that you're going to be frequently tested. You know there will be immediate consequences uh, to failing. But they are not the, the consequences you will care about, since you care about your free time on the weekends. But they are not consequences that will necessarily cause you to lose your job or to you know, destroy your family connections that are important to your roads for recovery. And they've actually found that in a number of these programs uh, that they've had a very, very good success rate at getting addicts and people with these sorts of difficulties to refrain from using uh, whatever substance abuse they are having, uh, and they're able to stay out of the criminal justice system and able to keep jobs. And of course, if you're an addict, every day in which you're not using is another significant step on the road. Uh, to recovery. So diversionary courts and specialty courts are one time of, of criminal justice reform experimentation that people are going with. In addition, uh, other states are looking at mens rea reform. So while specialty courts look and say that not everybody who commits a crime necessarily ought to go to prison or deserves to go to prison, mens rea reform says that, you know, that there are people who are subject to criminal, uh, criminal liability 
who never had any intention uh, to violate the law. Now, something perhaps unusual to hear from a Federalist Society speaker, particularly one from the Heritage Foundation, is that I want to give uh, Barack Obama a big uh, 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 kudos for significantly raising the profile of the criminal justice issue and problems in the criminal justice system. I don't agree with everything that he did to address that problem, uh, but I certainly uh, offer him a lot of applause for, uh, for raising the profile of the issue. Shortly before he left office, literally within a couple of weeks, he published an article on criminal justice reform in the Harvard Law Review, and I commend it to you. However, he devoted his entire discussion on mens rea reform to a footnote, specifically footnote 89, in which he says, and this is all he says, despite, despite broad support for criminal justice reform, despite broad support, there was vocal opposition from some, while others pushed for the reform legislation to be paired with proposals such as mens rea reform that could undermine public safety and harm progressive goals. That was it. Now, with all due respect to President Obama, I don't agree with him. To me, mens rea reform remains a matter of fundamental fairness. Think about first principles. Why do we brand people as criminals with all of the consequences that uh, flow with that label? What gives us the moral authority to do that? Well, I'm pretty sure that most of us would answer that question by saying it's perfectly okay to brand somebody as a criminal, if that individual intentionally violates a law in order to get some personal gain in a way that causes harm, or if that individual puts on blinders and engages in, act, in an activity in which he or she knows that there's a substantial risk that harm will fall. And I think you would be right to give that answer. We have, however, very slowly and over time, <coughs> drifted away from a system that seeks to punish people who act out of willfulness or malice, and more towards a system that punishes people who engage in some activity that results in a harm that we don't like, regardless of any intentionality or malice on the part of the actor. That has, in my opinion, helped to weaken the moral force of our criminal laws, and there are lots of traps for unwary citizens. So under our common law and for much of our nation's history, there were only a handful of criminal offenses, and almost all of those were what you have learned in your criminal law classes or malum and say offenses. Rape, murder, arson, kidnapping, theft, fraud. Each one of these types of activities prohibited conduct that was universally recognized uh, as being morally appropriate. If somebody said, oh, gosh, I didn't know uh, that it was a crime, to uh, commit arson, uh, you could look at them and say, under the old legal maxim, that ignorance of the law is no excuse. If you knew you were engaging in something that's universally recognized as being morally appropriate, it should come as absolutely no surprise to you whatsoever that it also violates uh, the criminal law. That is, however, no longer the case and somewhat makes a mockery of, the legal, of that great legal maxim. Uh, it is estimated that buried within the United States Code there are approximately 5,000 uh, federal criminal statutes. And within the incredibly massive code of federal regulations, there is an estimated, and this is an incredibly conservative estimate, 300,000 or more regulatory offenses that carry criminal penalties for their violations. There are, in fact, so many criminal laws and so many criminal regulations that nobody, literally nobody, 
not the Department of Justice, not the Congressional Research Service. Nobody knows how many there are or where they are. And that is, by the way, just federal offenses. So just to pick a few. How many average people do you think would know that the following are actually federal crimes? To make unauthorized use of the 4-H Club logo, the Swiss Confederation coat of arms, or the Smokey the Bear or Woodsy Owl character. <laughs> to fail to keep a pet on a leash that does not exceed six feet in length on federal parkland. Remember that the next time you bring your dog to a federal park. To poll a service member before an election. To sell malt liquor labeled pre-war strength. <laughs> to write a check for an amount less than one dollar. It used to be that before somebody could be convicted of a crime, a prosecutor, and I was a prosecutor for a number of years, would have to prove that the defendant committed some act that constituted a crime, that was the actus reus, and that he did so knowing that he was violating the law, or that he was at least knew that he was doing something that was wrong, and he therefore had a guilty mind. That was the mens rea. Today, many laws, criminal laws, lack adequate, or in many cases, any mens rea requirement which means that prosecutors do not have to prove that the accused knew that he was violating the law or even knew that he was doing anything wrong in order to convict him. Innocent mistakes and accidents can become federal crimes. Now, with respect to malum and say crimes, it is perfectly appropriate to use the entire moral force uh, of the government uh, to bring the entire moral force of the government to bear in the form of a criminal prosecution in order to maintain order and respect for the rule of law. The same cannot be said, however, for many malum prohibitive offenses, which are not inherently morally blameworthy and which would not raise red flags in the eyes of your average citizen. Now, mind you, if you come from a heavy, heavily regulated industry and you are given special training as to what regulations apply or don't apply, and this is you know, maintaining knowledge of these regulations as a condition of your doing uh, business, if you enter onto a facility where there are warning signs uh, that are posted as to what violates the law or doesn't violate the law, then, you know, fine. You, if you violate the law, you had fair, uh, fair notice. But a lot of mom and pop uh, businesses that can't afford to keep lawyers on their speed dial or you know, individuals who are going about their business, they have no idea what any of these regulations are all about. The notion that a crime ought to involve purposeful, culpable intent has a, a long-standing and solid historical grounding. In 1952, the Supreme Court in Morissetti versus the United States, in a very important opinion uh, by Justice Robert Jackson, who was the former Attorney General of the United States, also the Nuremberg prosecutor, stated the following. The contention that an injury can amount to a crime only when inflicted by intention is no provincial or transient notion. It is as universal and persistent in mature systems of law as belief in freedom of the human will and a consequent ability and duty of the normal individual to choose between good and evil. There's a lot of baggage that comes along with being convicted of a crime. Absent extraordinary circumstances, I, I think that we should reserve that label for people who commit morally blameworthy offenses with some awareness that they are doing something wrong when they, when they acted. We should not, in my view, be so cavalier about labeling someone a criminal when they engage in some unwitting act that causes harm. That's what we have the civil uh, justice system for. 
After all, as Oliver Wendell Holmes once wrote, even a dog knows the difference between being kicked and being stumbled over. The next question. If we're going to send someone to prison, how long should we send them there? Now, most of the proposals that have been considered in this regard, both in Congress and in the states, have involved drug offenders. Now, I believe, I'm not a, you know, uh, I'm not a libertarian. I don't believe in decriminalizing illegal, legalizing drugs. I believe that drug dealers should be punished. But the question is, for how long? Now, since the enactment of mandatory minimum penalties for drug offenses in the 1980s, the federal prison population has increased by more than 850%. There are approximately 200,000 people incarcerated in federal prisons. Approximately half of them are there for drug offenses. Many of these offenders were sentenced under mandatory minimum drug laws. And of course, there are lots of states where there are even more drug offenders incarcerated, and many of them have mandatory minimum drug laws. In a speech a couple of years ago at Georgetown Law School, Patty Saris, who is then the chairman of the uh, United States Sentencing Commission, she's the chief judge of the District Court in Massachusetts, said the following. Mandatory minimum penalties sweep more broadly than Congress likely intended. Many in Congress emphasize the importance of these penalties for targeting kingpins and high-level members of drug organizations. Yet the commission found that 23% of federal drug offenders were low-level couriers who transported drugs, and nearly half of these were charged with offenses carrying mandatory minimum penalties. The category of offenders most often subject to mandatory minimum penalties were street-level dealers, many levels down from kingpins and organizers. In 2000, the Bureau of Prisons constituted roughly 18% of the Department of Justice's discretionary budget. Today, that figure is roughly 26%. That means less money available for investigators, prosecutors, agents, victim services, grants to state and local law enforcement authorities, and other priorities. Now, given current fiscal restraints, I think it is safe to say that the federal government and state governments are not about to embark on a prison uh, expansion uh, you know, project for the foreseeable future. Given this reality, I see each prison cell as being extremely valuable real estate that ought to be occupied by those who pose the greatest threat to public safety. Under our current system, in my opinion, too many low-level drug offenders are locked up for 5, 10, and 20 years, while lesser sentences would, in all likelihood, more than satisfy legitimate penological objectives. That's because the safety valve that currently exists to get out from under mandatory minimum penalties is very, very narrow. Oftentimes, very low-level offenders uh, do not have useful information about higher-ups in a drug conspiracy that they can provide in order to get a substantial assistance departure. And even though they may be only a street dealer, they are, are often part of a conspiracy, and they can be tagged with all of the drugs sold by themselves and all of their co-conspirators. And when you start doing that, it's not very long before you trigger into mandatory minimum land. In my opinion, Congress ought to uh, expand the safety valve and ought to seriously consider pruning back on some of these mandatory minimum penalties. I know a number of states have already started doing this with great success. Congress is not going to do so uh, in this term. There was, uh, uh, this is an issue in which uh, the Democratic parties and liberals all want to cut mandatory minimum uh, penalties. Uh, conservatives are divided on this issue, uh, but given the opioid uh, crisis and given the fact that Republicans are divided on this issue, I do not think 
that at this time that issue is going to move in Congress, but we will see. Now prison reform, third question I posed, which is what do we do with inmates while they are actually in prison? And this is the area in which I think has the best chance of passing in Congress because prison reform enjoys broad bipartisan support. However, there are a lot of very tricky, politically sensitive details that still have to be worked out that could end up scuttling all of this. So so-called prison reform proposals are designed to make it less likely that somebody is going to recidivate upon release. Such proposals typically involve three things. The first is they want to expand prison programs of you know, tested programs that are likely to reduce the risk of recidivism, such as educational programs, uh, job skills programs, mental health and substance uh, abuse programs in prison. Then two, you want to encourage uh, inmates to avail themselves of these opportunities. And then three, along with using risk and needs assessment tools, you want to then match inmates with the kinds of programs that will provide them the skills that they need. Substance abuse problem, substance abuse program. They lack job skills, job training program. They lack an education, GED program. And then you want to provide incentives, meaningful incentives to these inmates so that they decide to sign up and complete these programs. Now, while some very hardened uh, violent offenders will likely continue to pose a public uh, safety threat, again, as I said, for the rest of their lives, and they should remain incarcerated, uh, many offenders who are behind bars uh, could very easily become productive, law-abiding members of society, uh, breaking the pernicious cycle that currently exists. Such reforms are particularly important because of the huge numbers, probably over half of inmates in state and federal systems who suffer from substance abuse problems, mental health problems, or in many cases, both. Both conditions are staggering, are associated with staggeringly high rates of recidivism, and prison programs currently addressing these needs are few and far between. As things stand, we are spending billions of dollars cleaning up the mess that is left by recidivating offenders who suffer from untreated alcohol and drug dependency and mental health issues. And in my opinion, we should be spending some of that money helping people overcome these problems at a time in which we actually have physical control over them and can provide them incentives to complete such programs. Until that changes, I think the prisons are highly likely to remain what they essentially are today, which are revolving doors. Now, as I said, there are a lot of naughty uh, issues that have to be worked out. These have to be evidence-based programs. There aren't a lot of evidence-based programs uh, with a documented track record of success in all of these areas. The other costs are going to be associated with these programs. I don't think there's any real estimation uh, as to what costs uh, will entail. Are they all going to be done by government officials? Or what kind of partnerships are you going to enter into with the private sector in order to provide job skills or, or training, those sorts of things? What kinds of incentives do you offer to low, medium, and high-risk offenders, do you offer them the same uh, incentives? If somebody's a high-risk offender, and even though they take all of these programs, they remain a high-risk of offender, do you want to offer them an early release as an incentive uh, because you risk putting somebody who's dangerous back out on the streets? Uh, there are arguments on both sides of this. How do you come up with this risk-needs uh, assessment? Uh, is that going to be based 
on purely dynamic factors, or is it going to be based on static factors? So dynamic factors will include the programs that you take, steps you've taken to improve your lot in life that can change over time. Right? That can be a good predictor about whether you're less uh, likely to recidivate if you are, or if you are released. But what about status, static factors? Right? So some static factors, if you come from a single family uh, home, or you grew up in a poor neighborhood, if you are a person of color, that's clearly a static factor. I mean, these things, like them or not, are associated with higher rates of crime. But of course, some people will look at them and say, well, one, I can never be incentive. I can't change uh, the color of my skin or the fact that I grew up in a one-parent uh, uh, household or, or that I was raised in a, in a bad neighborhood that was gang-infested. And there are other people who make a perfectly coached argument that if you were to consider those factors, that that has a racist element to it. I understand those arguments. On the other hand, if you eliminate, eliminate those factors as if they weren't there, then perhaps the tool becomes useless because it isn't really testing anything about how likely you are to recidivate. I have no answers to any of these questions. But these things, well, Congress is focusing on prison reform. And while I actually think the prison reform may well pass at some point in this Congress, uh, these are factors that still have to be debated. So we're not quite there yet. Let me touch on collateral consequences and the possibility of getting a record sealed and expunged. And that has to do with what do we do once offenders are released. And I consider this to be the flip side of the coin of, uh, of prison reform. So the goal here, again, is to help people reintegrate into society so that they can become law-abiding, productive citizens and so that they won't commit new crimes, which is why I say it's the flip side of prison reform. Collateral consequences are a real problem. These are civil penalties that are tacked on to somebody uh, as a result of their uh, criminal conviction. There are thousands of them. In fact, according to the latest count kept by uh, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, which has done a great study on this, there are over 48,000 collateral consequences, uh, in, if you include federal uh, collateral consequences and consequences imposed by the states. Some of these are common that you all know about. You lose your voting rights in, in almost all states, not in all states, Maine, for instance, you lose your right to vote. You lose your Second Amendment right to uh, purchase and possess a firearm. You lose your ability to serve uh, on a jury. You lose certain government benefits. There's restrictions on your housing. Um, you, if you're a sex offender, you have to register under SORNA, the Sex Offender Registration and Notification uh, list, and that list follows you wherever you go to. And there are thousands of licensing and occupational restrictions. Now, some of these make perfect sense, right? You would not want somebody who was a serial armed robber to be able to uh, possess a firearm. You would not somebody, uh, want somebody who was a child molester uh, to get an occupational license to run a daycare center. Uh, but there are lots of restrictions that are imposed on people uh, collaterally that have next to nothing to do with the offense uh, that they committed. And they really seems to me are designed to either protect people who are in those industries who don't want the competition of ex-offenders, uh, but also uh, it's designed to just keep punishing people after they have already served their time. Uh, and it is a fact that this is an issue that doesn't get the attention that it deserves. People cannot be permanently marginalized and made to feel like second-class citizens. Released offenders have a tough enough time uh, as it is. They've got two strikes against them. They have a criminal record, they're lacking job skills, they have gaps in their resume. 
uh, people who are thinking about hiring them have to run the risk of a reputational harm if that ex-offender hurts somebody. Perhaps insurance companies won't bother, won't insure them if they hire somebody who poses a higher risk uh, of problems. Uh, but you know, if, if people get pushed into corners and are denied opportunities to live in a safe and stable environment and for gainful employment and made to feel as if they are part of a, you know, the American society, they are going to have very little choice ultimately but to recidivate. Now, looking at the clock, I was going to talk about collateral consequences, which may be of interest, uh, not collateral consequences, civil asset forfeiture, which may be of interest uh, to some of you, but I fear I've gone on too long, so I'll turn it over to Professor Major. And if anyone wants to ask me about civil asset forfeiture during the QA period, I'm happy to address that as well. Oh, and I should say when this is done, I wrote an article uh, in Texas Review of Law and Politics called Criminal Justice Reform at the Crossroads. It's a couple of years old, but a lot of what I just talked about uh, is still quite current and still in here. So if you'd like a copy, please feel free to take one. Okay. So first of all, I want to thank Sarah and the rest of the Federal Society for putting on this great event uh, and for and Mr. Malcolm for delivering such uh, terrific remarks. I really, I always uh, enjoy participating in these Federal Society events. I really appreciate that the Federal Society tries to have a speaker with an opposing viewpoint. So I want to apologize in advance for the fact that I'm not going to oppose uh, the vast majority of what Mr. Malcolm just talked about. Um, and, and I think that that itself is, you know, an important and notable fact. So, you know, the... Um, so I guess I want to say sort of a few quick things about areas of agreement, which will cover an enormous swath of what he just talked about, and then I'll talk for a moment about one area where uh, I'm not sure where, whether we disagree or agree and where further clarity is required. Okay, so enormous areas of agreement. I think a great percentage of what he talked about, the, um, the human costs of being in prison and a criminal record and the cost to society of incarcerating people, um, the, the promise and possibility of diversion programs, drug courts, the like, some of which, like the Hawaii plan, seem to be operating relatively well, a lot of others of which are very poorly run and directed to the wrong people, but nonetheless the possibility of using those mechanisms. Um, the, the issue about the number of people who are incarcerated, questions about prison reform and about collateral consequences. To my mind, these all fall under a general heading, which is we are spending too much money locking up too many people who have committed nonviolent offenses for too long, um, and in the course of locking them up, uh, causing too much damage to their future prospects for having a productive life, holding down a legal job, and just generally being a productive and non-criminal member of our society. Um, and that is something that we have realized through a process of sort of research and policy analysis over many decades um, and before we've arrived at this point. Now, part of the reason I think that we've gotten to this, this step is because the politics are so aligned against any type of the reform that Mr. Malcolm was talking about. You know, no one is a less popular interest group than convicted criminals. No one is going to have a tougher time lobbying with, in front of Congress or state legislatures than they are. And on the other side, you have um, powerful uh, interests that build private prisons and the like that have an interest in locking up more and more people for longer and longer. So I think it's a great credit to people across the political spectrum that there is now uh, you know, a broadening consensus that our prison policy on the whole has worked poorly. I guess I want to say one thing in particular about the prison reform piece of this, which I think is especially important. So 
even if, so I should say, so those of you who took my criminal law class uh, know that there used to be sort of third reason why we incarcerated people. These days we only incarcerate them to deter or incapacitate them. It used to be that we thought that we could rehabilitate them in prison. We would incarcerate someone who committed a crime and after a certain amount of time in prison they would come out as a, a better functioning, legal, uh, legally behaving member of society. Um, this was popular among academics, which should be a bad sign, um, and among some state legislatures in the 60s and 70s, but the country went away from it almost completely in the, let's say, three or three and a half decades after that, the 80s, 90s, the, uh, and the 2000s. And the theory was that, um, I guess I should say not the theory, the reason was that there was just no political will for spending money on uh, on convicted criminals like that. People thought, why should I be spending money to build a better library for that guy who was selling drugs? Um, why don't I just spend that money on my own kid's library in my own hometown? And I, I guess you, know, you can understand the political appeal of that kind of attitude, but I guess what I want to say is that I think that that view has always been misguided and has always been mistargeted for many of the reasons that Mr. Malcolm explained. And here's the main one. Even if we didn't care about convicted criminals for their own sake, even if we said, you know, these people have done something wrong, so we don't care about the treatment we visit on them, nothing is too bad for them, even if we only cared about law-abiding people who are not committing crimes, it would still be economically sensible to invest money in rehabilitation in prisons and trying to make prisons places that don't cause recidivism at the same rate in education and job training and the like. Because the... The more hardened somebody is when they come out of prison, the fewer opportunities they have in the rest of their life, the more likely they are to recidivate. The more likely they are to go commit some other kind of socially harmful crime, be it a violent crime or a nonviolent crime, and land themselves right back in prison, just perpetuating this cycle. It's to everyone's benefit to, um, to, have them, uh, to have them be able to find some type of employment, something to do with their lives other than commit another crime. There's, there's a real sort of similarity. So Mr. Malcolm talked about um, evidence-based programming uh, and using sort of using analysis of these types of programs to figure out what really works. You know, there's a perfect analog to this actually um, in universal pre-K education for kids. So universal pre-K education for kids is expensive, and that's why very few states and localities provide it. But all the research shows that every dollar you spend in universal pre-K education, basically sending kids to nursery school, you get back more than a dollar in tax revenues later on because you're just more likely to build some child who turns into a productive, non-criminal, effectively functioning member of adult society. So the data on prison rehabilitation programs is not there, but I suspect that there will be lots and lots of programs that will turn out to have the same sorts of positive effects where you get more than a dollar in return for every dollar you put in. So I think that these are all steps in the right direction, and just simply reducing the number of non-violent offenders incarcerated in prisons will help very much in that regard as well. Okay, now I want to focus a little bit um, on the topic of mens rea reform, which I think is one area of potential clarification, at least. And I'll try to be brief because I want to leave time for Q&A. There are two possible ways to think of mens rea reform and what it means to have mens rea requirements as attached to a statute. One way is to require some sort of mens rea with regard to what the person is actually doing, the steps they are actually taking, the facts they are actually engaging in in the world. 
The other is requiring that they have some mens rea as to the fact that they are breaking the law, the fact that there is a law out there. So it's the difference between saying, you know, I didn't realize, I didn't intend to pull the trigger and point the gun at you, versus saying, I didn't intend to break the law that prohibits murder because I had no idea that there was such a law. Or to use um, the example from earlier, it's a difference between saying, I didn't intend to reuse the Smokey the Bear image versus I had no idea that it was illegal to use the Smokey the Bear image. The first of these, mens rea as to the actions that you're actually taking, that's the purposeful and culpable intent that has always been sort of the, the bedrock of American law. That's what Frankfurter is talking about in that opinion that Mr. Malcolm just quoted. That has always been a piece of the law. Um, and only in the last several decades have we seen sort of the spread of what are called strict liability crimes, crimes in which mens rea is not required. Knowledge of the law, knowledge that I am breaking a law here, that has essentially never been part of American law. The status of the law, just the status of your knowledge of the law that you are abiding by or not abiding by has almost never been an element of any crime, the kind of thing that you had to prove before you could actually hold someone responsible. So nobody cares. This is the ignorance of the law is no excuse maxim. Nobody cares whether you know what the law in your jurisdiction is. The law has only ever cared that you know what it is you're doing. Now, there are arguments in favor of requiring that people know the legal status of their actions, that they have not just an intent to take some action, but an intent to break the law in doing so, or the knowledge that they are breaking the law. You know, it's kind of fundamental to our notions of due process that people ought to have notice of what the laws are so that they can avoid breaking the laws if they want to. But if that's the proposal, there are very serious problems with it as well. To start with, of course, just as Mr. Malcolm said, there are innumerable crimes and nobody knows what they are. No law professor knows what all the crimes out there are that people might um, be, be, uh, be committing. No law student could ever learn this. Experts in the particular field do not necessarily know all of the crimes that are available. So what does this mean exactly if we require that people know of all the crimes before we convicted them of them? Uh, it would be awfully hard to convict people of lots and lots of crimes out there. And we're not just talking about crazy, obscure things like, um, uh, like using the Smokey the Bear image or having your dog on a seven-foot leash instead of a six-foot leash. I mean, just think, how many of you know all of the driving laws in the state of Illinois? How many of you know the standard for reckless driving in Illinois? How many of you know what the age of consent is in the state of Illinois? Uh, there are lots and lots of other examples. And it would be a little strange if you, you know, people could sort of blithely go through life not knowing what the standard for reckless driving was or even whether there was a reckless driving standard in their state um, and not be convicted for it. Even if we tried to sort of cabin those types of laws off and said, look, we're not talking about things like reckless driving. Maybe those are malum and say crimes that they involve harm. We're just talking about other things like environmental <coughs> rules, uh, you know, securities fraud, that type of thing. One very serious problem with requiring knowledge that you're breaking the law is that it opens the door for people just to lawyer their way out of crimes. So here's the strategy. You want to go commit securities fraud? You find a lawyer out there who will write you an opinion letter that says that the thing that you're about to do is not actually committing securities fraud. And then, even if that lawyer turns out to be right, well, if they, if they turn out to be right, you're off the hook. If they turn out to be wrong, 
Even if the lawyer turns out to be wrong, it's a shoddy opinion and you are breaking the securities laws, you just walk into court and you say, Your Honor, I didn't intentionally or knowingly violate the law. Look, I got a letter from my counsel that says that I wasn't violating the law. I was attempting to avoid it. Now, the upside of that type of world is that it would be full employment for all of us. Uh, so we, we, would, we would do more business than you ever might imagine. The downside is that anyone with enough money who can hire a lawyer with sort of shady enough ethics or an idiosyncratic view, a sufficiently idiosyncratic view of the law, can basically write themselves unlimited numbers of get-out-of-jail-free cards. And that's why the law has never required that you know that you're breaking the law. Because you worry that people will just find some lawyer who will tell them you're not breaking the law, thus defeating the knowledge and thus exonerating the person, no matter how obvious the crime might be. So I think that that road towards requiring knowledge of illegality is a very dangerous and fraught road. The other path is just to require knowledge of the thing you're actually doing that makes you guilty of the law, knowledge of what's actually happening. And I read Mr. Malcolm's article about this, and the examples he points to actually fit that description. He had an example about someone who sold otter pelts to someone who turned out to be not a Native American. You apparently could only sell them to Native Americans, so they committed a crime, despite the fact that they thought they were legally selling them to a Native American. That's that's an absence of mens rea about what you're actually doing, as opposed to an absence of mens rea about the legal status of what's going on. There, exactly as Mr. Malcolm said, and for all the reasons that the Supreme Court justices he quotes have alluded to, there is a long and very sensible tradition towards requiring mens rea and trying to curb the use of strict liability crimes. Those of you who've taken my criminal class know that the model penal code, which was academics' best attempt to write their own criminal law, completely does away with strict liability crimes and says that they are completely, entirely disfavored. Strict liability crimes became very popular over the past several decades because it's sometimes hard to prove mens rea. It's hard to prove that someone knew exactly what they were doing, and sometimes we want to be aggressive and try to curb some type of activity which we think of as excessively dangerous. But I completely agree that the use of strict liability crimes has gotten somewhat out of hand and that they're now being applied more liberally into more situations than ever was really necessary or contemplated. But here's the big elephant in the room for all of this, the thing that was not talked about. Um, the big elephant in the room is that the number one place where strict liability is used is in possessory drug offenses. The crime of possessing narcotics usually has no mens rea attached to it. So the typical circumstance is that someone is found with drugs in their car or in their house, and they say, you know, I have no idea how that got there, those aren't mine. And that might be very difficult to prove. It might be next to impossible to prove that someone knowingly put those drugs in some you know, air duct in their house or something like that. But under strict liability rules, um, it doesn't matter anymore. So that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to mens rea. And whenever, whenever anyone talks about mens rea reform, the, the thing that I want to know the most is, what, what about all the people who are currently incarcerated for possessory drug offenses where there was no need to prove mens rea? Um, because these other sorts of cases, you know, how long your dog's leash is, the selling of otter pelts, those are rounding error to the number of possessory drug offenses where this becomes important. So I guess uh, this is just a call for sort of clarification of what exactly, which type of mens rea reform we're talking about, and I guess it's just an open question to Mr. Malcolm about whether he feels the same way about mens rea reform as, as it regards, let's say, possessory drug offenses as regarding all these other types of crimes. Because I do think that the same arguments in favor of and against strict liability or the requirement of mens rea will apply in most cases approximately equally as strongly in both of those instances. 
Okay, thank you very much. Those are some very thoughtful comments, and I really appreciate it. I have several, I have several reactions. I, with respect to rehabilitation, I will agree that the public's faith in the prison justice prison uh, system to successfully rehabilitate uh, people has waxed and waned uh, over time. We used to talk about these as um, uh, corrections facilities, as they refer to them. were corrections facilities. So the model was to rehabilitate somebody. Uh, and, and it just decided after a while the prisons did a bad job at that. Uh, a former Watergate co-conspirator, Chuck Colson, who founded Prison Fellowship when he got out, uh, made good with the rest of his life in terms of pushing uh, people uh, to revisit the issue a bit of rehabilitation. And I think that certain states have started doing this and started meeting with great success and now have graduation programs where people get GEDs and eat substance abuse and things like that. So I think the public's taking another look at rehabilitation. As a, as a model worth pursuing, uh, so long as programs are evidence-based and you're not just throwing good money after bad. And I think that's a good thing to do. Now, with respect to mens rea, let me state just at the outset, I'm a sauce for the goose, a sauce for the gander kind of guy. And have mens rea requirements with respect to white-collar crimes, you should have them with respect to blue-collar crimes, so that's not an issue. Now, I must say, though, that with respect to most drug possession cases, uh, there is usually an element of proving that the person had, knew that they had actual possession or constructive possession of an illegal narcotic. So people can say as a defense, uh, gee, this packet in my pocket, I didn't realize that it was uh, a ball of fentanyl or, or powder cocaine or it was a Tide Pod. If they can persuade a jury that that is so, they walk. But usually the circumstances in those cases under which you're undercover buys or you know the, the circumstances attended with the arrest or the search make such a story to be implausible. Now with respect to the other kinds of, of mens rea cases you had, I'll, I'll have a very clear answer to what you said, although I'm not sure you picked the best example, at least by my lights, I want to explore it with you, on the reliance uh, on counsel defense. So let's think of three paradigms. So one says um, it's a crime to knowingly mail a false document to a federal agency. And there's a code section that says that. Right? Now, there are some people who are going to say, well, the knowingly just applies to the mailing. If you knowingly mailed something that was addressed to a, a federal agency, and the mailing contained a false document, even if you had no idea that the mailing contained a false document, you are guilty of a crime. That is an inadequate mens rea proposal. To me, if you knowingly mailed something, use of the mails, part of the crime, to a federal agency, that would be another hook to make it part of the crime, and you knew that what you were mailing was a false document, you can be found guilty of the crime because you knew you were doing something that was wrongful. The last part, I do not think you need to prove. Congress can write a law if it wants to, or the states can write a law that makes it a requirement that you knew that it was an actual violation of a law. I'm not saying they can't, just as they can write a strict liability offense. I just don't think they should absent extremely rare circumstances. You want to make it a crime to mishandle plutonium? Okay, maybe. Or nuclear, you know, nuclear material? Okay, maybe. 
But these are rare exceptions, and I uh, completely agree. I mean, you know, you shouldn't have to be, have been a federal prosecutor or a defense attorney uh, to be convicted of a crime because you were the only people that knew that this particular activity actually violated Title 18 United States Code section something or other or something or other. Now, with respect to the example that you used, I found it a curious one about uh, reliance on counsel. Uh, you might get full employment uh, for lawyers if, if people could get off quite so easily uh, on a reliance on counsel uh, defense. My guess is that you'd have to constantly replenish those lawyers because a lot of lawyers would either end up being disbarred for being unethical or they would end up uh, in the same prison stripes along with the person whom they advised. So if you really have a very difficult regulatory situation, I'm not a huge expert in insider trading laws, but even there there's I know just debates about what's a tipper or a tippy and how far away you need to be. And it's a genuinely confusing area of law. And you are genuinely trying to comply with the law. And you have genuinely reached out to a lawyer whom you believe is skilled and competent to advise you in this situation. And the person sends back a letter that says, you know, this is okay. Then I think that you, you should have a valid defense to committing that crime. You may be barred as an administrative matter from engaging in, addition, uh, in additional securities uh, trading. You might be uh, civilly fined for violating uh, a civil law, but in an area in which there is actually gray and in which you have made a genuine good faith attempt to find out whether you're on the right side of that line or the wrong side of that line, I think that is uh, uh, and should be a valid defense. There are, on the other hand, of course, lawyers who are uh, completely bought uh, and paid uh, for. Uh, they are always in cahoots with the, uh, with the client. They write letters that are purely protectual, designed to try to uh, cover up what both sides know is a scam. Uh, that is why the crime fraud exception is, uh, uh, is an exception to the attorney-client uh, privilege, and it's not uncommon. Well, it is uncommon, thankfully, but it's not unheard of for lawyers who give such advice uh, to end up on the same side of the ledger uh, along with the person who engaged in the trading in the case of United States of America versus lawyer and trader. Uh, and you know, so if it's protectual or it's a sham and, and the government can, can prove that, then they both should uh, go to jail. But if it really is genuinely a gray area and a person is trying to find out whether their conduct is in compliance with law, that ought to be applauded. And if they get it back advice, even if it turns out to be wrong advice, uh, you know, then they shouldn't go to jail. Look, tax attorneys give advice uh, to people who are paying taxes all the time, and the IRS uh, often takes a different view from that tax advice. It doesn't mean that everybody who misfiles or relies on what their accountant or tax attorney said so uh, all of a sudden should be uh, sent away to prison for violating IRS laws. So I guess that provides uh, some clarification. And I guess we have about four minutes left for whatever, <laughs> whatever questions anybody might want to ask. Yeah. So I have a question about um, something you mentioned earlier uh, regarding predicting recidivism. Uh, and it, it ties to sort of the second area that you haven't discussed today, which is past future health discretion. Uh, so you mentioned sort of some of these factors that are not changeable about a person um, that are predictive of recidivism. Um, while those factors may not themselves be changeable, what is changeable is how those factors are viewed uh, by police officers, by prosecutors, by judges and juries, right? And I, I think what's difficult about predicting criminality is that criminality is not some kind of like fundamental truth that is a fact in the world. Criminality is a label that gets attached to people. 
by a prosecutor, a judge, and a jury, and most often these days by you know a, a prosecutor and a defender making a plea bargain. So I guess what I would ask is what you think of of the role of sort of individual uh, choice on the prosecution side, and I include in that you know police sure. department policy um, in terms of of applying uh, some of these statutes. Um, who gets you know uh, uh, observed where, where police officers are patrolling, and then how prosecutors make decisions about who to charge and and how to make those decisions. Sure. Well, when I was talking about dynamic and static factors, it was only within the context, not about charging people who have argu arguably committed other crimes. I was using it only in terms of when you're going to rate somebody in terms of whether they pose a low, medium, or high risk of committing another crime when they are released. Is it permissible to include in that static factors that are that are just as a statistical matter, you know, would support that you are at higher risk of committing a crime, but nonetheless are immutable characteristics that might be viewed by many people, if not most people, as being racist in application. In terms of prosecutorial discretion, um, you know, some offices allow for prosecutorial discretion, other offices don't allow for prosecutorial discretion. So Jeff Sessions, as Attorney General, uh, just uh, withdrew. This has actually gone back and forth between Republican and Democratic administrations, going back to John Ashcroft and Eric Holder, or, you know, all before that, about whether federal prosecutors must charge the highest readily provable offense or not. And there are advantages uh, to cabining discretion. I mean, if you think, for instance, that discretion is being utilized. Uh, in racist ways, where white people get a pass and people of color don't, and cabining discretion is uh, is a good thing, right? And you're going to treat more people alike for the activities uh, that they engage in. On the other hand, if you if you have too strict in terms of limiting prosecutorial uh, discretion, you do eliminate the possibility for a human factor for diversion uh, programs to consider. Things like the kinds of things that a jury will consider in a death penalty case about whether to impose the death penalty. What was their upbringing like? Were there certain, certain, certain circumstances that led them to commit this crime that in some way can be mitigated so as to lessen the risk of their committing a crime in the future? Uh, so you know, people have different views. So, I mean, I, I, I think for the most part, I mean, they're, they're bad prosecutors, both bad in terms of their personal characteristics and bad in terms of just being bad. Uh, you know, they're bad people in all walks of life, in all professions. Uh, but most of the prosecutors that I have dealt with over the course of my career are, in fact, you know, pretty good and fair. And, and, and you may think they're too draconian in terms of their application. But as, as they see doing justice, they're trying to do it fairly and with integrity. Same thing with defense attorneys. So I think we're out of time. I'd encourage you to uh, stay and ask some more questions if you have them. But let's thank our speakers. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.